All right, and I'm pleased to announce uh, Mr. Andrew Hudson. Thanks, Jay. Hey, it's great to be with you guys this morning. Um, I, uh, I, I may have said this before, but I love movies. Like, I could watch a movie if my schedule allowed it, like, every day of my life. I just, I've always really enjoyed them. And part of that is I've always, I just love good stories. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but almost in every good movie, there's always, almost always some form of great opposition in the movie. You know, you have a, the protagonist, you know, who's opposed by the antagonist. There's two opposing forces, you know, trying to, where hopefully the good force overcomes the, the, the bad force. But, but not, this isn't just true in movies or books or stories. It's true in the Bible as well. You know, it's true in the Bible as well. We, we hear stories all the time. Many people, many of the great men and women that, who face great opposition, we find stories of them in the Bible. Think of men in, like uh, David, David and Goliath, right? Or Moses versus Pharaoh, or even Esther versus Haman. You know, of course, the greatest of all of these was Jesus. Jesus overcoming and facing the opposition of the enemy of Satan and overcoming sin and death itself. And we've been in this series over the last couple of weeks that we've entitled Real Life, Life Lessons from the Book of 1 John, this letter that the disciple John um, wrote. And last, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, Michael kicked it off and he talked about how um, our life is, we need to be connected to the real Jesus. He talked about who the real Jesus was, and we'll kind of hit on that a little bit again more today. But and then last week, JT talked about how in the letter we find this theme about sin that we have to address what real sin is like and, and how we deal with that in our lives. And today, the theme that I'm going to focus on is, is real opposition, is real opposition. And we'll see that John, who was likely the last man standing of the original 12 disciples, that he is writing this letter probably as an older man to a church or a group of, of small churches that he had planted. And the primary reason he's writing this letter the primary urgency for this letter is that it seems that there is this faithful group of Christians who are facing great opposition. And so we're gonna, we're gonna dig into that today. But let's pray with me here first before we get into the scripture here. But just pray with me. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be present with us today. I ask that the words from 1 John that we're gonna be looking at would come alive to us, they'd speak to our lives that we would encounter you, God, the real you. And I, I know that because this is real life, that there are people in this room that are facing real opposition right now. They're encountering real opposition in their lives right now. It might be at work. It might be at home. It might be spiritual. I, but I pray that you would meet each one of us today. You would draw near to us personally. Amen. Amen. So the first point in your notes is, is simply identifying the opposition. Identifying the opposition. In the second chapter of 1 John, in this little letter that he writes, we get some insight into the context of why John is writing this letter. And in, down in verse 18, we're going to start off and kind of read a good chunk here. But in verse 18, he starts off like this. He says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how you know it is the last hour. And so as he starts off here, this is a real warm and fuzzy verse, right? This makes you feel great, 
Right? And by the way, this is the verse that your children are learning back in children's ministry today. Could you imagine if that was true? That would be terrible. They'd be coming out terrified, scared, like, you know. I think there'd be, numbers would be popping up everywhere. Um, but, but John is trying to get across something that this is, something very serious is happening, very serious is happening, and I want to address it. That's what he's saying. Let's keep reading verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Who is John talking about here? Who's the, who's the they in this story? Who's the they in verse 19? John is talking about this so-called group of Christian men and women who had been a part of the church that John had originally planted, but since then had changed their views on who Jesus was. They, they were now declaring some false ideas about Jesus, saying that Jesus really wasn't full, uh, a full human being, and he wasn't really the son of God. They were, they were trying to, to change who Jesus was, presenting a counterfeit. And Michael talked about this the first week of this series, that, that this group left the church, but they didn't leave to never be seen again. They didn't move to like the other side of the known world, or they actually moved basically across the street. And they set up a new flashier church across the street with preaching a new cooler version of Jesus. And John is trying to encourage those who've stayed behind that these other people were never really a part of us, he's saying. They were never really a part of us because if they were, they would have stayed. They would have, they would have stayed connected with the real Jesus. But let's keep going in verse 20. But you have an anointing, he says, from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Here's this phrase, Antichrist, again. It's come up three times already. We're going to come back to that here in a second. But verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you, will, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. Eternal life, abundant life, real life. That's the inspiration for this, this whole series that we're doing, coming from this verse. And I, verse 26, and I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing that you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in him. Now, this is a very loaded passage. With, we could take a long time to pick this apart, but I just want to point out a few key things that seem really critical in this passage. First, if we go back to verse 18, we see that John states that it's the last hour, that it's the last hour. In verse 18, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. What is John talking about here? What does he mean the last hour? Well, I think it's pretty clear that he's not talking about a last literal 60 minutes. Otherwise, he would have been way, way wrong, right? But, but what do you, this word hour in English, when it's translated from the Greek to the English, doesn't mean an actual literal 60 minutes. It's not talking about seconds. 
and time in that sense. It's talking about an age of time, an epoch of time. He's talking about that we're in the last hour. He's saying we are in this last stage of history where Jesus has come the first time, but he hasn't come back yet the second time. We're in this in-between stage. And and what John is trying to say is that during this in-between stage, you are going to have opposition. We are going to have and experience opposition, that life isn't always going to go easy. That to, to, he's saying that to the audience, and he's saying that to us, because we are still in this age, that we should expect pushback, that there are going to be those who oppose Jesus, that there are going to be those that, that offer a counterfeit Jesus, and that things in life aren't always going to go smoothly. And as we saw in this passage, we saw this phrase antichrist, whether it was singular form or plural form, show up three times. And here John says to them that you've heard that the antichrist is coming, but I want to caution you that many antichrists have already come. Now, this phrase antichrist, I think is maybe one of the most unclear and probably misunderstood and even mistaught at times phrase in the whole Bible. You know, if you've grown up in the church or if you maybe heard, heard a little bit about this, you may have been heard or taught that, that one day there will be this final figure, this final figure, an antichrist who will come and that we should watch out because it'll seem like this person is the real deal, that this person is the real Christ, but it's actually a, a, a false one. It's, a, it's an antichrist. It's a, it's a false version. And historically, for example, we've seen that people have, have thought this figure to come already. You know, back around World War II, many people thought Hitler was the Antichrist. People were convinced that what he was doing he had, um, was, was very much the beginning of the end, and, uh, and they thought that Jesus would come back any minute, and then Hitler was stopped, and, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And, and all throughout history, and, and even since then, many other people have thought other various leaders might be the final Antichrist. But in this passage... Here in this passage, John seems to be much more focused in addressing the idea that there are plural antichrists living right now among us in his age that he was talking to. And it's interesting that most people, I think, misbelieve that this phrase antichrist is found in a different book that John wrote, the book of Revelation. But did you know that nowhere in the book of Revelation does this exact phrase antichrist appear? Not once. Not once. It's found five times in the Bible, four times in what we're going to look at today in 1 John. And the fifth time, it's in 2 John, his second letter. Nowhere is it actually found in Revelation. Now, many theologians going all the way back to Irenaeus, writing in the second century in his book series, Against Heresies, he connects, he connects this figure called, known as the beast or a beast in Revelation to this end times final antichrist. And John is not denying that there won't be a final antichrist. He's, he's, he knows that there will eventually be a last one. But he, instead, he's assuming his audience is already aware of that teaching. And he's extending that idea to explain that there are antichrists right now. And he seems much more interested in talking about this particular group or class of people that has left the church and he's calling antichrists who are in opposition to the real Jesus and to his church. In fact, in verse 22, we read this. It says this, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, 
Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. In this phrase, Antichrist, it really simply means exactly what it says, against Christ, or instead of Christ, or anyone teaching a false version of Christ. And you know, we don't, we don't live in a time so different than they did back then. Just unfortunately, just because a building has the word church on the side of it, or on the sign out front, doesn't necessarily mean that that church is proclaiming the same Jesus that John knew. Many people would agree that Jesus was a great teacher, that he was a great advocate for social change, you know, well, well beyond his time or earlier than his time. But they don't always believe that he is the key to the entrance to eternal life with God. That is through salvation and faith in him that we receive grace to eternal life with God. And many groups have created counterfeit Jesuses to fit their agenda. You know, if you do a historical study of most cults, you will see that they almost always follow the same typical pattern. That almost every single cult was founded by somebody who came from within the church. And then they left to form what they perceived to be the true church, claiming that everybody else has got it wrong and they had this new special knowledge from God and Jesus that no one else had. And that was very, very similar to what this group was doing in this text that we're reading about. I don't know if you remember, but back in the 1950s, there was a guy named Jim Jones. Jim Jones, who started a church called the People's Temple. It was a, well, it was a cult called the People's Temple. And originally, Jones was actually a pastor at a Methodist church in Indianapolis. And after some um, disputes with leadership, uh, he left the church and decided he was going to plant his own church. And there was even some things that, that appeared that, that Jim Jones was doing to, to be honorable. There was even a few things. like He was working for social change and, and trying to work with uh, racial reconciliation that at first appeared good. But in the end, he claimed to be Christ himself. And he convinced hundreds of followers to actually move to Guyana, a country in South America, and, and he, he became very paranoid. And, and eventually, um, he um, led in 1978, that was the year, yeah, 1978, under his leadership, 918 people, including over 200-some children, died in a mass suicide drinking grape-flavored juice laced with cyanide. You may remember that's where we get the phrase, don't, don't drink the Kool-Aid from. Like it was, it was his, his story, his church that did that, or his cult that did that. And prior to 9-11, that was the largest single event of U.S. civilian lives lost in U.S. history. Jim Jones was charismatic. He was enticing. You know, he, he convinced hundreds of people to follow him, even to the point of their death. B.H. Carroll, uh, founder of the religious department at um, Baylor University and then later founder of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, is often quoted as saying this. He says this, when you see a star fall, you know it's not a star. When you see a star fall, you know it's not a star. What he means by that is a falling star or a shooting star, while it appears to be a star in the sky, actually isn't a star at all. It's just a rock burning up in the atmosphere as it comes in towards the earth. 
and eventually it turns to nothing. And what, what he meant by that is that there are people, and, and when someone here, some philosophy or some religion claims to know something new and special about Jesus that isn't the Jesus of the Bible, they may at first appear to be this shining star flying across the sky, but, but in fact, they're not a star at all. John is, he's writing to the faithful members of this church saying, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived and follow the, this cultic preaching of a different Jesus. Don't forget what you already know. Don't forget what you've already been taught. Don't forget that you already know who the real Jesus is, that I, John, taught you. Remember that I, had, I of all people, have a right to claim as much as anybody else on earth who the real Jesus was. I actually like walked beside him. I knew him personally. I called him a dear friend. And my guess is, you know, not a whole lot of us had a friend or family member this week, you know, trying to convince us to come visit their new church, you know, the cult of ultimate liturgical teaching, C-U-L-T, right? <laughs> no, nobody probably passed out a track to you claiming to have some new special knowledge about God. But, but I'm, but I'm probably, I think, fairly certain that you've overheard conversations in the workroom or at, you know, in your neighborhood where somebody might say something like this. You know, I, I just, I believe all roads, you know, basically lead to the same destination. You know, and basically when it comes to religion. You know, as long as you believe in something, I think that that's, that's good enough. Or, or maybe on social media you see somebody post something about, oh, you just need a little bit more faith. If you just had a little bit more, I know God would give you exactly exactly what you want when you want it. And when we hear statements like that, they sound really nice. They sound really encouraging and tolerant and welcoming. But there's something in our brains, in our hearts, that a warning signal should go off with that. To say, I'm not sure if that's exactly right. I know they mean well, but I'm not sure if that's exactly what Jesus would say or do or think. And I don't think that God is calling us all to be heresy hunters, you know, going on witch hunts, looking for, um, you know, cultic connotations in every single conversation that we have with people. But I do think he's calling us to be wise. I do think he's calling us as Christians to not be afraid to kindly and politely ask questions, maybe even challenge a friend's thinking from a place of love sometimes. To not be afraid to look into and research things for ourselves and not just naively and automatically take everything we hear to be true. But John's word should encourage us to take our faith seriously and to know what we believe, to know what we believe. Remember, you might remember that over this series we've been talking about how John writes very circular. He doesn't write in a linear fashion. So in chapter three, he goes on to talk about other things, but then in chapter four, he comes back to talk about the same group of people. Uh, this time, he, he not only calls them antichrist, but he also calls them false prophets or false teachers. So in chapter four of 1 John, in the very first verse, verse one, we read this. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. 
And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and again, even now, is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That last verse is often famously quoted and often referred to. But this leads to the next point in our notes, that John is encouraging his church, he's encouraging us to test, to test it, to test the product, to test what, what this idea is selling or this person is selling. And so that's the second point in your notes. But how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, this word test found in verse one here, back in the original Greek, was commonly used in the first century to talk about testing metal, testing metals to see if they were genuine or an alloy or a mixture, to, to hold the metal to the fire and to see if it's pure or if impurities kind of bubble to the surface. But, and that's what John is saying here. And I want to offer, I want to offer us three tests. And these aren't exclusive, but I think these are three helpful tools that we can use to really test a belief or idea about Jesus or God or our faith to know, is this really what I um, should be believing? So in the first test is the scripture test. And this might be obvious, but the scripture test is simply what John is saying here is that we need to test it to know if it's with lining up with the real Jesus. And since we are living 2,000 years later than Jesus, and where he's not walking amongst us right now, then, then we have to rely on the Bible to align our thinking to the real Jesus. We have to ask ourselves, does this idea, does this teaching match up with the Jesus of the scriptures or just the Jesus of my liking or the Jesus that fits my desires or my interests? If we, if we get to pick and choose who Jesus is, then I think he eerily becomes and begins to look like a good version of ourselves. The things that we care about, that we think are important, that we value, we think, oh, God definitely cares about this stuff. But the things that we don't care as much about or we don't have as much passion for, well, that gets, kind of gets pushed to the side as not that big of a deal. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, does this view align with God? And not just any God, but the God of the Bible. Because God's character doesn't change. The God's character that we find in the Bible is God's character today. The things that he cares about then is the things that he cares about today. God will never contradict himself. So the question is, does this line up with scripture? And the second test is the spirit test. By the way, they all start with S. So the spirit test it was in John, in chapter 4, he said, some will have the spirit of God and some will have the spirit of the Antichrist. So what is the evidence of someone having the spirit of God besides just claiming that Jesus was God? Well, John doesn't talk about this much, but, but Paul does. Paul talks about this in Galatians when he says, well, you'll know by the fruit that they have, the fruit of the spirit. In Galatians 5, we read this, verse 22. But the Spirit produces the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then down in verse 5, we get, we get our new life from the Spirit, so we should follow the Spirit. Those who are following the Holy Spirit over time become transformed by the Spirit and exhibit the qualities of Jesus. 
Sometimes we think we can transform Jesus to look like us. But instead, Jesus wants to transform us to look like him. And over time, we become more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, and so on. And so the question is, is to ask, is this person or this saying or this philosophy or idea, is it demonstrating the fruit of the spirit? Do I see evidence of that? And not just on the surface, but really see it. And then the third test is the scholar test. The scholar test. What do the experts say? What do the experts say? You know, what is the consensus? Over the last 2,000 millennia, you know, many educated men and women have become biblical experts and dedicated their lives into studying the life of Jesus, to studying Greek and Hebrew languages. What do they say? And in, in this particular case of the story we're reading, John was the living, breathing expert. He was the living scholar of that time. And what he said should hold more weight than some Joe Schmo who just, you know, came to the church last week for the first time and all of a sudden has some new special knowledge of Jesus. You know, the, John is warning us, warning the people, don't be duped. Chapter two, he says this, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. We read this earlier. And all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. He's saying, you already have the knowledge. I've already taught it to you. You don't need some new other special knowledge. So who are the scholars and the experts in your life? Who are the John-like people in our lives? Who are the mature Christians that, that... who've walked with Jesus for a longer time than you have that, that you can go to, that you can run to, ask questions of, and collectively see what they say about an idea. John and, and Paul are basically saying that if some teaching or idea doesn't pass the scripture test, the spirit test, and the scholar test, then it probably, the Jesus that's being presented isn't probably the real Jesus. That's probably a counterfeit. That the faith being presented probably isn't the real faith. But then, how do we deal with this kind of opposition? How do we deal with this kind of opposition? Well, unfortunately, that's a whole other talk for another weekend. Uh, but to give you a little sneak peek for coming back next week, but the answer is maybe not what we would expect. It's not putting up our fists and duking it out. It's counterintuitive that it's love. It's love. It's real love. The whole rest of 1 John, if you've read it, is just about love. And, 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 uh, and that's what we're going to talk about next weekend, so you have to come back and hear that. But, but if all we looked at today was identifying and testing opposition, then I think um, it wouldn't be fair because we, we, we wouldn't be acknowledging the other side of the coin. And what is the other side of the coin? The other side of the coin is, is the reality that this group of people was for sure dealing with immense pain from betrayal that this group of people, some of their bestest, closest friends have left them and betrayed them. And that's the third and final point in your notes, dealing with betrayal. And no doubt these faithful Christians John is writing to experienced a lot of pain and abandonment as their close friends left the church, denied the real Jesus. And not only that, they were speaking out against them and what they were doing. And I wonder, have you ever had an experience where you felt 
really betrayed by somebody who was supposed to be in your corner, who was supposed to care about you and love you, someone you thought was on your side. Um, when I was finishing up grad school, I was getting my master's in middle childhood education. Many of you know that before I was a pastor, I, uh, I was a te- school teacher. I taught for 12 years public school before coming on staff here. And um, when I was finishing up grad school, I had to do student teaching like every teacher does. You have to get, you get thrown in the classroom and take all that knowledge you've learned and, and actually put it to practice. And, and the school that I was at, uh, uh, I had two different classrooms I kind of jumped back and forth with. So I had two mentor teachers who kind of oversee, oversaw me. Uh, and most of my time there, I was, I was there, I had to do student teaching for six weeks. And so, so I, was, I was all in. Everything was on me. So I was planning the lessons. I was contacting parents. I was, you know, you know correcting students. I was doing everything. I was working my tail off. And, and when you're doing something for the first time, it always, it's harder. It takes longer. You know, I was, I was just... I was exhausted, and I was trying. I was giving it everything I had, and about the and and, and my my mentor teachers were um, pretty indifferent, to be honest. I didn't get a lot of feedback. They would kind of just say, "Oh, that was a good lesson," but I didn't even really know that they were really paying attention that much. And the one would even like leave sometimes, leave leave the classroom, or leave the whole school, and go buy like school supplies. I'm pretty sure that was illegal, um, but. Uh, but about a week left, I was, so I had five weeks in, and I was about, had about a week left, and then I was done. Like, I was going to graduate. Um, about a week left, they called a meet, my two mentor teachers called a meeting with me and my supervisor from OSU. And the four of us sat down, and I thought, oh, this is good. This is going to be like kind of the final meeting, the send-off. And, uh, and I was totally caught off guard when they basically told my, they told my supervisor, they actually, they, they didn't basically, they flat out said, we don't think that Andrew should graduate. We don't think that he has the knowledge or has, has done a good enough job in the classroom. And I was so shocked. I was completely shocked. Because only, like, the only little feedback I got was like, oh, it was good. And I assumed no news is good news, right? So I assumed things were going good. But apparently, they didn't feel so like I was. And, um, and I felt so betrayed. And I was like in full-blown panic mode in this meeting. Like, what is going to happen? What is going on? And thank God, my supervisor, she really spoke up for me. And she really said, you know what? I, that really surprises me because I have seen, I've watched Andrew over the last year or so. And everything he's, you've asked him to do and everything I've seen him do seems more than adequate. And you know, we put him in this school because we really felt like this would be a good fit for him. And, and, um, and I, I really strongly disagree. And, and she said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take, take him out of this school for the last week. And she put me in a different school the last week of my student teaching, a school that I had, had been in a little bit here or there. Um, but uh, it didn't really matter. I did graduate right after that. But it didn't really matter because the damage was already done. <laughs> like, I, I, the wound was already cut too deep. Like, I really felt really, really betrayed. And I just didn't, I didn't trust myself. I didn't, didn't think that I had what it took anymore. And uh, I didn't even want to apply for teaching jobs. I didn't even want to, I was like, I'm done. I just wasted, like, all this time and money. I'm just done. What am I going to do? And, uh, but I did apply for jobs, and I met, you know, by the grace of God, uh, landed a, a great teaching job. 
in a great school district uh, with a staff and families that really supported me, encouraged me. Um, and uh, thankfully and humbly, I say that my mentors were extremely wrong. Like I was one of the, I was a good teacher. I was a really good teacher. And my, um, I was one of the highly, or a lot of parents and students, I was one of the most requested teachers in our building and, and asked to be on lots of committees over the time I was there. But for the first four, maybe three, four, five years, every day I went to work, I felt like dirt. I felt like I couldn't do it. I felt like I didn't have what it takes. Everybody was telling me, you're doing a great job. I didn't believe them because that betrayal had dug so deep. It took a long, long time for God to do a healing work in me to feel like, I'm doing, I'm doing a good job at this. I'm doing good work here. You know, as we read this letter in 1 John, we can take heart that the author, John, he was not new to opposition and he wasn't new to betrayal either. This text that we're reading out of 1 John was not the first time that John had been a witness to someone on the inside, someone who was supposed to be on the same team exhibiting immense betrayal. He had actually seen it firsthand when he was a, very, a younger man, when he watched a really close friend and fellow disciple betray Jesus. If you know the story, I'm talking about the betrayal of their good friend Judas. And in John's gospel, not in this letter, but in his gospel, John tells us this unique side of the story where he, he was right beside Jesus when this all happened. He was right in the midst of this betrayal when it all happened. When all Jesus and all the disciples were sitting around the table and Judas began to betray Jesus. We're going to read this in John 13. John 13, starting off in verse 21, says this. And after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples stared at one another and at a, at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one who I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do it quickly. Now, a few years ago, I heard Rich Nathan, pastor of Vineyard Columbus at a conference, explain this text and describe the arrangement of the table setting in this story. And I think most of us imagine the table to be like a table that we, we think of today. Or maybe uh, you think of, if you want to go ahead and put this painting up, Da Vinci's painting of, of this table and this painting where we see a, a, a long rectangular table with Jesus in the middle and the disciples kind of sitting around or standing around or sitting on stools. But what Rich explained was that this, this picture in this painting is, is probably not very accurate. That culturally to the time that that's not how tables were back then. There was probably more a U-shaped table, very low to the ground, and that they didn't sit in chairs, but they actually laid down at the table. And they would often, the, the custom was to lay down with their, your feet laid back away from the table and to rest your left elbow onto the table so that you could reach for food with your right hand to feed yourself. 
And so if we imagine this U-shaped table with Jesus kind of in the middle area and the disciples all kind of lined up laying down on their left elbows, we read in the story, who is to Jesus' right? Who is to Jesus' right? To Jesus' right, it says, is the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And what you may or may not know is this is how John referred to himself in his gospel. He didn't want to talk about himself in the third person, apparently. Uh, So he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so John, so close to Jesus, is leaning on his left elbow, and he's basically leaning into the chest of Jesus. Talk about closeness. Talk about intimacy. Talk about vulnerability. And then Simon Peter's in the story. And and so is Simon Peter on the other side of Jesus? Well, no, it doesn't seem to appear that way. It seems to appear that Simon Peter was on the other side of John. That it was probably Peter, and then John, and then Jesus. Because Peter, when Jesus says that one of the disciples is going to betray him, Peter whispers to John and says, ask him who he's talking about. Who's he talking about? So Peter's leaning into John, whispering to him. And so John leans into Jesus and says, Jesus, who's it going to be? So who's on the other side of Jesus? Who's on the other side of Jesus? It was Judas. It was Judas. Judas is to the left of Jesus, which means that Jesus was essentially leaning into Judas with his left, on his left elbow. He was leaning in to Judas. That Jesus trusted Judas. That Jesus was vulnerable with Judas. That Judas was one of his closest, dearest friends. So we, I think, have gotten this story all wrong. We, all, we think of Judas as being the outsider, the outcast, the black sheep, the one with the mischievous black mustache that's curled up, Right? That's how we perceive it, and we think, well, how did they all not see this coming? But in fact, Judas was one of Jesus' most trusted friends, and he betrayed him, and he betrayed him. One commentator describes that the highest place of honor was the the seat to the left of the host where Judas was at. That was the highest place of honor. It was the place of honor of deep friendship, uh, where the host could whisper and lean into that person and whisper something where nobody else could notice and hear. And since John doesn't share any info about people complaining and jostling for position left of Jesus, that, that Judas was just kind of expected to be there or okay being there, we can assume that this probably wasn't the first time Judas had sat next to Jesus. That this may have been a, a regular occurrence, that they were dear friends. So when John is writing this letter to this church and these church members, to these remaining few who've been faithful, who are no doubt discouraged and brokenhearted that that a group of their dear friends have betrayed them, John is not writing from this impersonal, you know, disconnected viewpoint, but rather from an emotional, heartbroken place as well. It's a reminder to us that unfortunately on this side of heaven, that sometimes in our real lives, there is real betrayal. There is real opposition. Sometimes the pain is so strong that you think it may have gone away over time, but then something happens to spark your memory of that event, 
and all the emotion comes flooding back. And I wonder if John, who isn't writing this letter in his old age, isn't remembering back to when he was a young man and watched his dearest friend Jesus be betrayed by their close friend Judas. And I I know in a group this size that some of you have experienced real opposition in your life because someone betrayed you. Someone betrayed you. An ex-spouse maybe told you that they would love you forever, that God told them to marry you, that they would never leave you. And then they tell you one day that they think Jesus wants them to be happy and that they would be a lot happier with this other person. And they present a counterfeit Jesus. Or a boss, a boss who you looked up to as, as a Christian leader in your life who maybe talked about your faith with, decided that God was telling them to make some changes in the company and they were gonna have to let you go. They're gonna have to let you go. And then two months later, through the grapevine, you find they've bought a second home in Florida. Or a dear friend who maybe led you or first introduced you to Jesus, who brought you to church for the very first time. Maybe they abandoned the church altogether. And you're wondering, where have they gone? What have they left me with? Maybe a parent. Maybe you had a parent who abused scripture so they could abuse you. Sometimes the opposition in our reels is our opposition in our life is very real. It's very personal. But we can take heart. We can take heart because the real Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be treated so poorly and experience tremendous pain. He knows what it's like to be in your shoes and my shoes. And I'm convinced that if you live long enough, you will experience some sort of betrayal in your life. But here's the really good news. Here's the really good news. Jesus will never betray you. Jesus will never abandon you. He will never leave you. And he has overcome the world. He's overcome the world. Again, John's words that he wrote, that we read in verse, uh, chapter four, verse four, are encouraging to us. It says this, you, dear children, are from God. He's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are from God. God is on your side. God is for you. He says, and you are from God and have overcome them. He's talking about these betrayers. You have overcome them. There's a way out for you because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Amen? Amen. Let's... Let's do this. If you'll do this with me, if you'll engage with me for a second, if you feel comfortable, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a second. Don't fall asleep now. I know we've been sitting here for a long time. Let's just close our eyes for a minute and let's, let's, get, let's make this personal. Let's take a minute to just listen for God's voice. Let's put ourselves in the story to examine where am I at today? God, what do you want to do in my life today? God, is there any area that I'm experiencing opposition right now in my life? It may not be opposition like here in 1 John, but but is there any opposition I'm facing at work or in my family, with my spouse or, or friendships where I'm feeling or experiencing pushback 
like I'm just slamming up against this wall and I can't seem to break through. Am I I dealing with the pain of betrayal by someone who was supposed to love me and, and care for me? Maybe it's recently, maybe it was a long time ago. But even just talking about it, it's re-sparking that memory, and now I'm feeling this emotion rise up in me, this, this anger, this fear, this hatred. Maybe that might be, mean that God wants, is not done in, in healing me and doing a restoring work in me. I think, I think there might even be a few of you here who, who realize, I, I think I've been taught a false Jesus. I think I've been taught a counterfeit Jesus. Maybe you grew up in the church or in a family where Jesus was talked about, but maybe, maybe the real Jesus wasn't the Jesus that you were taught about. That God might want to meet you and, and, and show himself to you. He, you have an encounter with the real Jesus today. I think there might even be a few of you who uh, were raised or a part of a cult or some, a family member of yours maybe was a part of a cult and, and they would come and talk to you about it and it kind of impressed these ideas about God on you about it and it skewed your view of God. I think God wants to meet you today. You can go ahead and open your eyes. Why don't we stand up here? Why don't we stand up? Just the last thing I want to do before we, before we leave here today is we always like to end with a time of response. Uh, and JT's going to lead us in a worship song, but I want to invite some of you to come forward and get prayer. I think that for some of you, some of those past or things that God was doing something in you, he was stirring something up in you, in your heart, in your mind, and if that's true, I want to encourage you to come forward and get prayer today. Don't leave without having somebody pray for you and meet God. some of you, have a, you're experiencing opposition right now. Don't, don't leave today without getting prayer for that. Maybe, and maybe you've never, never, like I said, been introduced to the real Jesus or never experienced that. Um, it might be a little scary, but I want to invite you to come forward and get prayer. Somebody brought you today, you know, you can make them come with you. But come forward and have somebody pray that God would meet you today and introduce you to Jesus. And also, if you're sick or you know, experiencing any pain in any sort, we always love to pray for those of you who are experiencing pain or sick. And just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen God do some really cool stuff. Uh, praying for a guy last week whose who's back felt better two, uh, a week and a half ago. Pray for a guy's shoulder whose shoulder felt better. So if you're experiencing back pain right now, if you, if standing up was a little hard for you, you know, or, or pain in your shoulders, or really any physical, any physical needs, I want to encourage you to come get prayer. So JT, like I said, is going to lead us in one last worship song. And um, if you need prayer for anything today, come forward and guys pray for guys, girl prays, girls pray for girls.